Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. It's good to be here. It really is good to be here. We, uh, we took a tour of Israel and we had a wonderful time. And uh, what I want you to do is in just a moment, we're going to continue to pray. The Bible says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We want to do that together. But before we do, we did a few different things, new things on this trip. One of those things is we took a, a hike up to a place called Mount Arbel. And it's a place that looks over the, the Sea of Galilee. It has a beautiful view. You're probably about 1,500 feet above sea level. You're looking down, and the team just took time and worshiped the Lord. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. We enjoyed that opportunity. We, uh, we enjoyed being there. We enjoyed being with the kids. It looked over the Galilean region. And uh, we, we had a blast. The other place that we, we went, we had gone before, but this is the first time anyone decided to climb Masada. Now, you have to see Masada. Masada is a long way up. In fact, when you're at the base of Masada, you're at the lowest place on planet Earth. You're about 1,200 feet below sea level. When you get to the top of Masada, you're at sea level. We had never climbed it before, and I never intend to climb it, so I wasn't one of the climbers. But we had oh, about half our group say, we want to go. And it was a, a mix of generations. Most of the young ID students wanted to do it. But we had some others climb Mount Masada as well. And Nett climbed it. Uh, Dale Clark, 75 years old. I mean, he hiked up that rascal. He was up there in a, in a flash. And Mike Diggles climbed it. And uh, there were some people that just took it on as a project. I really enjoyed the air-conditioned gondola. That's where I saw my view of Masada. Listen, I was just being a good pastor. I needed to stay with the rest of the group. I didn't want them to get lost. And so I knew the, the group that went ahead, they were all fine. They had a net with them. So it was a great experience. We had a wonderful time. We also went to a sifting project in Jerusalem. Maybe you even heard about this on the History Channel or National Geographic. The head archaeologist is a man named Gabby. And uh, so he was there, and we met him, talked to him, had pictures. But the kids went through, all of us went through a sifting uh, project. And, and one find, Emily, found, Emily Goddard found a Roman coin. And so that's a big find. Even there, that's a, that's a, that's a priceless almost find. And so uh, she found a coin. And that and I found uh, what would be a, probably a medieval musket ball. It was made out of clay. And what you have to remember there, all of these are tells. These are layers of civilizations just laid right on top of one another. It depends on which strata or layer you tap into as to the time frame you're looking at. And so there were all kinds of time frames just mixed up because it was one of those kinds of digs. So we had a, a, a great time, a wonderful time. And what we want to do is I want to invite you to... Israel. I want to do that. I want to invite you to come with us in 2013. Caesar says you must go. And so, uh, and so we want to invite you to come and be part of that. It really is a great learning experience. It does take time to save. It costs some money. It costs some time. Uh, but I think all together, it, it really brings to you just a, a, an enriching experience to where you'll read the Bible and you won't read it the same again. Uh, and that's exciting when you're able to do that. Let's do this today. Let's, let's pray for the peace of, of Jerusalem. Can we do that? Father, we just come together and we just ask in Jesus' name that you would 
continue to bring peace, peace to Jerusalem, peace to Israel, uh, really peace, Lord Jesus. We see and we hear people shouting peace, peace, and we know that in the last days that peace will unravel, but we need it. And we pray in the way that you tell us to pray. We pray for peace, shalom. That's the way we pray, body, soul, and spirit, that we would experience a peace that passes all understanding. God, let your people experience that. Let us experience things that we've never experienced before. Just saturate us with your peace. In Jesus' name we pray, and we say together, amen and amen. Annette and I are still trying to get through jet lag. We've been here for about three or four days. Last night was a little bit grueling. It was three in the morning, according to my body, and I was preaching, and I was having out-of-body experiences, so... Uh, I'm asking you not to buy that tape because I have no idea what I said. And uh, it may be true about this morning. I feel a little better than I did last night. But uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to open our Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5. I want you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John chapter 5. And if you're visiting or our guest today, we've been in a series titled Return to Your First Love. We've decided and we've really prayed about it, we've thought through it, and we've realized that in order for us to return to our first love, the Gospel of John is a wonderful guide to help us through this wonderful journey. While I was gone, I, I, I really appreciated the team that was here. I appreciated Pastor Al, Pastor Sam, their teaching. We have a wonderful team here. And Annette and I feel very secure. We feel very comfortable when we leave. We know that you're going to be treated well and that you are going to hear the Word of God. That's the most important thing that we can offer. And so that's what happens when, when we're gone and we're thankful for that. You know, when we study the Gospels and the life of Jesus, there are places that we call turning points, uh, places where the plot thickens, it, it gets elevated in its intensity, places where we need to slow down and look more carefully because something very important is about to happen. John chapter 5 is one of those places, and the reason here is that Jesus really ups the ante. He ups the ante on his disciples, his followers, and especially the religious community of his day. He really gets into their face, and it starts right here in John chapter 5. And I'll tell you how he does that in just a few minutes. But before I do that, I want you to know that John chapter 5 will be our study guide this weekend and next weekend as well. I want to encourage you to do this. Take John chapter 5 when you have that time. Maybe it's in the morning, in the evening. And read through that passage. There are 47 verses that I believe will really enrich your life. It'll enrich your life where you are now. And especially as we look ahead into that Easter season, we're going to have some things that I think God will open up to you, will show you out of this wonderful book, this wonderful passage. This chapter begins with Jesus at the pools of Bethesda. Now you ask, well, why are you saying that? Uh, the reason I'm saying that is Bethesda has a wonderful, rich meaning. Bethesda means pools of mercy and great grace. Now, don't miss the imagery here. I don't want you to miss this. Because just a few yards away, Jesus could see the sheep gate. That was the gate that the sheep were brought to the temple for sacrifice. Look at verses 1 and 2. John also lets us know that there was a feast taking place. And most scholars believe that feast was the Passover feast. So here Jesus stands at these pools, these pools of great grace and mercy, and he looks over and he sees the sheep gate as those lambs are being brought in for sacrifice. 
Jesus stands there just a few days before he would be crucified for your sin and for my sin. And again, don't miss it. The Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. Just a few chapters earlier, John recites something that was said. It's, for God so loved the world, or God has such great grace and great mercy that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, they're not going to perish, they're not going to die, but they will have everlasting life. Why? Because of the great sacrifice. Now where I want to go today in our study, in our lesson, is what Jesus taught right after this great story in verses 1 through 19. Now, don't worry, we're going to come back to this passage next week. It's really a story that sets up the moral of the story. Do you know how Jesus works at times? There'll be a healing or there'll be a miracle and he'll use that opportunity to ignite a lesson. He'll start to talk about something that's even deeper than what you saw with your own eyes. And that's what happens here in John chapter 5. What we recognize is there are things that are taking place. I want to give you just a little overview of this story and tell you what Jesus taught us on how to live a fruitful and productive life. You see, in the first 15 verses, we read about a man who had been crippled for 38 years. He was lying by these pools called Bethesda, these pools called pools of great mercy and grace. And this is where many who were sick believed they could be healed. And Jesus told this man, he said, pick up your mat and walk. When he did that, some Jewish leaders were angered because the Sabbath was violated. We read that story in the context of our, our Western culture and we think, what, what, what a big deal is this? I mean, why, why are these guys so upset? Don't they see that someone was healed? Don't they see the greater good was accomplished? You know, that's the way I used to look at it. In some ways, still do. But you have to appreciate the perspective of these religious leaders. You see, when you talk about Jewish history, you're not talking in the frame and the time frames of centuries. You're talking about time frames of millenniums, thousands of years. And over these thousands of years, there have been three things that have distinguished the Jewish people as God's people. One is circumcision. The other is their dietary laws. And the third is the Sabbath, Shabbat. Something that has been in place for millenniums. Something that is still in place today. We were in Jerusalem during the Sabbath. You can't take an elevator because you have to press the buttons. They just stop at every floor. Drives you nuts. But this is dear. This is sacred. And in their eyes, Jesus broke the Sabbath. And so they're angry. They're upset about this. When you look at verses 16 through 18, and I, I want to read those to you because you get a, a better idea of what's going on and will lead right into the story. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but that was even calling himself God, the Father, the Son of the Father, making himself equal with God. You see, there were two things. He broke the Sabbath, and he said, essentially, he's equal with God. 
I mean, it fired some people up. They were angry, so angry that they wanted to kill him. You see, this confrontation initiates some lessons from Jesus concerning living a fruitful life, a productive life, not a religious life, not a life controlled by institutions, not a life controlled by outside influences, but a life controlled by the strength and power of the Holy Spirit working in you. You see, Jesus is all about that. He always wants to get to the bottom of things. And he does that in this story. And I want to read to you what it says here. Follow with me, if you would, beginning at verse 19 through 30. Jesus gave them this this answer. He said, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent, has, sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him all authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and they will come out. Those that have done What is good will rise to live. Those that have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. There's a phrase there that's used three times that I want you to look at. I want you to pay attention to because each time this phrase is mentioned, there's a lesson taught within a lesson. And it's those three times, those three lessons that I want to draw your attention to this morning because of what Jesus says based on what he's just experienced, what they've just gone through with those religious leaders. You'll see that. It says, I tell you the truth, or very truly I tell you. This phrase, when Jesus uses it, wants his listeners to pay attention. It's kind of like he's having a conversation and then recognizes he really needs to make a point. So he says, very truly I tell you. So how does that look today? Well, the way it looks today is a boss or an authority figure calling a meeting bringing everybody together, having something to say, something important to tell the community or the group of people that he leads or she leads. I remember growing up with my father calling these meetings. Every now and again, he would have what we called a family meeting, and everyone would come together, and we would talk about things that pertain to our spiritual life, 
We would talk about things that had to do with our relationship with each other and with the Lord. And he would have these meetings. It was like, very truly, I tell you. Growing up in that kind of home, I emulated that. I've done that in our family. We call these meetings together, and I say, I have something important to tell you. And I remember when the kids were little, Becca said this. She said, I hate these meetings because they're always about me. (laughs) And I think, bingo, you got it. That's exactly why Jesus was saying this. He wants to call a meeting, and it's all about you. He wants to get to the heart of who you are. He wants to draw you closer to him. And so he doesn't waste any time. He says, truly, truly, I tell you, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to grow in this relationship. I want you to pay attention to what's going to be happening here. It's a heads up. And Jesus does that very, very well. You see, Jesus gives us some lessons on how to live a fruitful life. And the first lesson is found in the first, very truly I tell you. It's verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. There's a lesson there. Something for me to pay attention to because the first thing that I need to do in order to be fruitful in my life and the things that I need to be aware of, it's important that I have people I can follow. It's important that I have mentors in my life. You see, what Jesus is saying is, I don't do anything without watching my father do it. My father is the lead on this, and so whatever I see my father do, I do. You know those that have children, that's how your kids learn. That's how they grow up. It's not altogether what you say, but it's what you do. It's what they see you do. My dad used to tell this story early in the 60s. He was a smoker, and he remember working in the backyard. It's hard to believe that, isn't it? If you know my dad, I just can't picture that. But he's in the backyard, and he was a hard worker. He had us digging trenches and stacking bricks and we were always out there working together just three boys and my dad and we'd be hustling and he laid his pack of lucky strikes on the picnic table and he went off to work and he came back and he found my little brother walking around with a dry cigarette mm, smoking you know what he said he said that day I quit that was the day he quit because he realized something valuable in life he realized that it's not always what you say it's what you do Jesus understood the importance of having mentors in our own life, people that we can follow. Did you know that the best way to learn to do something isn't a traditional classroom or even through a textbook? That the best way is by watching and then doing. From verse 19 to verse 23, Jesus uses the words do, doing, or does eight times. You know, there there are arenas that we learn in. And they're very defined. We learn in the arena of relationship. We, we learn from each other. We learn in the arena of education. That is, that is a book education, a book learning. It's important. But the most important place that we learn, where we learn the most, is in the arena of responsibility. It's doing it. It's watching somebody do something and doing it yourself. That's where you learn about 60% of what you're going to learn in life. Our tour guide in Israel asked us, well, why do, you, why do you have so many people doing the devotionals? The young, the old. 
He said, I'm used to all the pastors coming and taking every one of those devotionals and teaching at those different sites. I think I taught twice. There were 16 sites, 16 devotions. We had the, the ID kids. We had the older people teaching. We just mixed it up. And I said this, my job, my focus is to make disciples. And the only way I know how to do it is the way I learned how to do it. Somebody just handed me the Bible and said, now teach, teach a devotional. And that's where I started learning. And that's what we want to do here. That's why you see that happen. You see, one person may influence a generation, but if that person gets smart and multiplies, you will influence three, four, five, ten generations. Because this isn't just about us. This is about those who are following us. I'm committed to that. I think Jesus is making a point here. He's telling us that a fruitful life is about action. It's not just thinking about it. It's not just wanting it. It's doing it. It's getting it done. I think there was, oh, two or three months that had passed after Annette and I had been married. We went up to Spokane to visit her family during the winter. And Annette said, how would you like to snow ski? You know, being kind of a bravado kind of guy, I said, yeah, I can do that. Listen, I never snow skied in my life. I grew up in Southern California. There was no snow to be found anywhere. If you asked me to surf, I could do that. If you asked me to ride a skateboard, I could do that. But snow ski, I had no idea. So we rented some equipment. We went up onto the ski lift. And while we're going up on the ski lift, what I was thinking in my head is, where have I ever seen anyone ski? Because that's how I learned. And I remembered the introduction to the wide world of sports. I remembered, that's the only picture I had in my head of, of snow skiing. And so I was watching a few people. I'm trying to take a, a quick lesson by those that are already on the mountain below me. And I get off the, the ski lift, and I turn those skis downhill and went like this. I just bent down. I was out of there so fast. I, I didn't really want to be embarrassed. And I was out of there. They didn't know where I was. They were all standing on the top of the hill. Where did that guy go? And I'm going downhill, and, and in the middle of this, I'm thinking, hey, this is going pretty good. Picking up a little speed. And then it occurred to me, while I saw someone start, I never saw anyone stop. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I've got to stop somewhere along this road, this path. And I kept going, and pretty soon the people at the, down below where, 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 the, where they get their coffee and all that, the lodge, they were standing there, and they didn't look too concerned at first, but then you started to see them get a little nervous because they saw this guy flying 100 miles an hour, and they're thinking, is he going to stop? The only thing I could draw on was sliding into second base. I've done that a thousand times. So I get down there, I slide into second base, and guess what? I pop back up still, voila. Scared everybody to death. The point is, I was drawing on what I was watching, what I had seen happen before. Now, I, I tried to learn better techniques after that, but you know, that's what we do. We see things, and then we want to follow those things. I realize that there, there are probably a lot of people here that aren't sure what a mentoring relationship looks like. I remember thinking that same thing myself and diving in to figure it out. Let me just give you a little bit of an overview. You can write these down. There are three types of mentoring relationships. The first type is intensive mentor. 
That's someone who is really your coach, your discipler. And, and this person is very specific about the details of your life. The second type is an occasional mentor. Those are people who are counselors or teachers. Uh, they, may, they may talk to you uh, about particular subjects or particular circumstances. That's kind of what goes on here. It goes on when you sit down with somebody maybe once a week and you talk about certain things in your life. That's an occasional, occasional mentor. But the third is a passive mentor. These are the people who are either past or present role models and they've inspired us to emulate them. I think of Bible characters. I, I think of David. Uh, you know, I, I think of Abraham. I, I, I think of people like that that have inspired me to, to live a more righteous life in Jesus Christ. These are people who do that. But it also can include some Christian history, some people in, in, our, his, in our past, in our history that we look at and we say, well, I'd like to be like that. I, I like that person. I'd, I'd love to live a life like that. And what you need to know is all of this is built on the foundation of love. Because in verse 20, it says the father and the son love each other. The kind of love mentioned here is agape love, a love that causes you to lay down your life for one another. This love even transcends time. It transcends space. Let me tell you what I mean. I, I, I wonder in this room how many of you know Billy Graham personally. Uh, I did this about eight or ten years ago, and three people lifted their hands. It shocked me. But, but I would say pretty much the, not very many people in here know Billy Graham. I don't know Billy Graham, but I can tell you this, I love him. And I love everything about that guy. I love his humility. I love his knowledge of the word. I love his passion for evangelism. I've never met him, but I love him. So what is he to me? He's a passive mentor. Listen, what I pray for you is that you find people in every one of these categories because it's called the constellation of mentoring. And when you're solid in those areas, you're solid. It's really amazing how all of this works. The next question that someone may ask is why are mentoring relationships so important? Why do we really need them? We hear that a lot, especially today. Can I tell you the main reason? is because when you have dirt on your face, you need someone to tell you. If you have spinach hanging from your teeth, you, you just love somebody to let you know. You know the people that come and let me know are the people I know love me. You know, I mean, I'm just gonna say, but boy, one of the most embarrassing things is when your fly's down. And, and I'll tell you, if you don't have people in your life to come up and say, <clears throat> especially if you're a preacher. That's why I wear long shirts just like this. <laughs> Those are the people who love you. You know, the people who really don't love you are the ones going. <laughs> <laughs> but the people who love you are going to pull you aside. They're going to tell you something. They're going to let you know. I think that's why it's important for all of us to have mentors in our life. And what I love about this place is there are a lot of people, elders, counsel. There are a lot of people in leadership, a lot of you. There are mentors for me in this building right now, people I watch, people I follow. But I love it when people come along and say, hey, 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 you got spinach in your teeth. Just pay attention. 
when we have mentors that help us get clean, the story tells us here that it gives us confidence, it gives us authority, and it gives us honor in verses 21 and 23. You see how that works? It's an amazing thing. Now I want you to look at the second lesson in verse 24. In verse 24, it it says this to us. It says, I tell you the truth. There it is again. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. (laughs) I love that. This is about having direction in life. This is about having the right direction in life. So what do we say here? We need a map. We, We not only need mentors, but we need a map. And what we recognize here is the map is given to us in the words of Jesus and really all of God's word. In Psalm 119 and verse 105, the word is described as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you've never read Psalm 119, you need to read it. It gives us all the characteristics and all the blessings that come through following the word of God as your map through life. This tells me two things. Psalm 119 verse 105 tells me two things about God's word. Number one, it's a lamp unto my feet. Have you ever thought about that? That the things that I deal with in the immediate, the things that I deal with in the now, God takes care of through his word. That God's word is current, that God's word is relevant, and, and God knows where I am presently, right now, this very moment. And so I need a light to show me even the next step I'm going to make. Because I could, I, could, I could fall, I could step on something and stumble. But with the light of the word, it shows me what's in front of me right now, today. It's relevant. And then it goes on, and the second thing, God's word will light up my path. That his word will show me what's ahead and will teach me where to go and where not to go. One of the things we did while we were in Jerusalem is we took the trip, the journey through Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel is, I think, about a half a mile long. It's a tunnel with water up to sometimes your waist, and you're in the dark if you do not have a light. And what I did is I led the charge. I wasn't letting anyone else set the pace. Let me tell you that right now. It was going to be me. And so I got ahead of everybody, and Annette and I went out way ahead, and we turned off the light, and you cannot see your hand in front of your face. It is pitch black. You're in water. You hear it flowing, and then everyone's going, (laughs) and then you turn the light back on. You shine it on your feet. It's a light to my feet, because I want to know where I'm at right now, and then I put it out ahead, because I know in that tunnel, it twists and turns. There's even some real angled turns. I didn't want to run into the wall. I wanted to know where I was going. In life, in the journey that God has given you, that's exactly what the word does for you. It helps you know what's happening in life currently and what is out ahead of you. I want to say this. The goal of God's word is always to take me away from death and lead me to life. One last thought about God's word being a map through life and and it's this you know it's one thing to have a map it's another thing to follow the map see I don't think our problem today is that we have little information that's not our problem we have a lot of information the problem we have today is do we use the information we have 
You know, I, I'm, I'm bad at that. I, I mean, I'll Google directions and I'll think, are they crazy? This isn't the way to go. You, there's another way. There's a better way. I said, I'm going to go this way. And every time I go my way, I end up lost, in trouble, turned around, confused, don't know where I'm at. But when I follow the map, when I use the information that I have, things turn out pretty well. You see, Jesus didn't just say, whoever hears my words will cross over from death to life. He said, whoever hears my words and believes, whoever hears my words and follows, whoever hears my words and obeys, they will cross over from death to life. You know, the reason I think there are a lot of confused, directionless Christians is not because they lack information. It's because they don't use the information they have. God has given you a wonderful map. The question is, do you use it? It's a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. That's why I need the word of God. That's why you need the word of God in your life. And here's the last lesson. To be fruitful or productive in life, you not only need a mentor and a map, you need to have a message. You need to have something to say. And what you have to say makes all the difference in the world, especially in the context of your influence, your world. Listen, God has given everyone a story. You have a story. It's the transformation of Jesus Christ in your own life. It's that place where the old is gone and the new has come. It's the place where you were dead and now you're alive. You have something to say. Can I tell you the greatest weapon I think the enemy uses against God's people today? And maybe you'd be surprised. I don't think it's lust. I don't think it's greed. I don't think it's envy. You know what I think the greatest weapon is? The greatest weapon is to get you to believe that your story doesn't matter. Because the Bible makes it very clear in the book of Revelation. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, our story. Jesus of Christ, alive in me, is the hope of glory. That's what makes a difference. You have a message. And I'm going to say it again. I've said it weeks before. Be strategically bold with your story. Look for places to tell your story. People want to hear your story because they see, they see your life. We need to model Jesus being mentor, having a map, and we need a message. Verse 25 says this, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Our message brings hope in two ways. Let me tell you the two ways it brings hope. It tells us that there is a spiritual resurrection, that you don't have to be the same that you don't have to be dead, that you don't have to be given over to the desires of the flesh. You don't have to have any of that because when Jesus comes in, he breathes life and there is a spiritual resurrection in you. Not only is there a spiritual resurrection that brings hope, secondly, we have hope of a literal or physical resurrection. I love that. Look at verse 29. Those that have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Let me explain that. When he's saying those that are good, he's not talking about your goodness. He's talking about all those that have chosen to stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you're found good in him. 
those that have not chosen to stand in his goodness, there's no gray area. You are living an evil life and you will be condemned in the last day. Listen, the central piece of all this that we're talking about, there's only one thing that you need to keep in mind. Listen, let me tell you something. There is so much confusion out there today. There are so many stories that are being told, and they sound good. They tickle your ears, but they're not the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ because the story of the gospel has one person in the center, and that's Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Anyone who adds or takes away from that is not following the truth. Please hear this. Man, there are things that are making national news today about our faith. People who don't believe in hell but are still preaching the gospel, their gospel. Listen, you're seeing it. It all sounds great. Oh, that sounds good. But I'm going to tell you something. You need to know the Word. And you need to know what the Word says about your relationship with Jesus Christ and who He is. Don't let anyone else dress Him up otherwise. I'm going to tell you what, you need to know what he says. Today, we have to have a handle on on the word of God to know. We have hope. The world has hope because there is a spiritual resurrection. There is a physical resurrection. And the Bible says that our bodies will be heavenly bodies when that physical resurrection takes place. 1 Corinthians 15.40. In 1 Corinthians 15.43, it says that our bodies will be transformed from being broken to being powerful. When I was 20, I didn't really appreciate that one. But today, I really appreciate this. Because what I'm saying is, Lord, you can take this away. Let's get it on. Let's go. I want a powerful body. And then the last thing is, we're given glorious bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, 43, you have that. And I'm going to say something to you, and I want you to listen carefully. Jesus is coming soon. I want you to listen to this. Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord. Come quickly. You have a message. And your message matters today. Be strategically bold with the message that God has given you. Would you do this with me? Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? And We're going to just prepare our hearts to receive communion. And I'm going to pray over what we've just heard. And then I want to give you some instruction concerning communion after we pray. Father, there may be those that are here today that, oh, God, they just, they just feel lost. They just feel alone. Like they're fighting in a big world by themselves. But every time they take one step forward, seems that they get knocked back two steps by the things around them. Father, I pray that you don't remove us from these things, but you give us that strength that comes from the power of your Holy Spirit that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. 
you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ in your life, let me invite you to do that. I can invite you because he invites you. He says, I stand at the door of your heart and I keep knocking. Knock, knock, knock. Each one of those knocks is a, is a plea. It's, it's come, come. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to do that. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I want you just to lift your hand so I can see who you are and I can pray for you. That's the purpose of what we're doing right now. He's coming soon. For those that are experienced, maybe you're experiencing a measure of loneliness or separation. You know, you know the Lord, but there's just a distance. If that's true about you, would you lift up your hand and let me pray for you? Good. 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 You can put your hands down now, and I'm going to just ask those that have lifted their hands, just quietly, just put your hands in front of you, just on your lap right now, just as a, as an, kind of a, a sign of I want to be connected, and clasp your hands right on your lap, just... I want to be connected and I'm going to ask God to help that happen Father I pray for those that have lifted their hands this, this very moment and it's a confession of a separation or a loneliness that may, they may be experiencing Lord that's just sometimes the, the way we feel but your word says that you will never leave us you'll never forsake us your word says that you will be with us to the end of the age your word says that your presence abides with your people. And I ask that you would make your word real and alive to those that have lifted their hands in confession today. That you would be alive and present in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks to us about communion and, and its importance to the Christian in our Christian life. And I'm going to read to you what it says here. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't know if you noticed this, but Paul tells us that communion is important because of three things. One, it is a memorial to the death and shed blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. Don't ever forget that. Secondly, it's a proclamation of our faith in the return of our Lord and Savior, Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
And then there's a third thing here. It represents our commitment and fellowship to the body of Christ, the church, the bride. And I have to be honest. I think this is one area that we've fallen short. The appreciation that God asks us to have to be connected to the bride of Christ, to be in a family just like this. And I pray, I pray there are many other families just like this because this is where I'm nourished. This is where I grow. It's in this context. It's in this environment. It really is the third truth about communion that, that I think we need to address. And that communion represents, again, my commitment and fellowship to the body of Christ. And I've been burdened about this. And I hope and pray that the words that you hear and you understand that really what's happening here is you're hearing words that are coming from the heart of a shepherd. The words I'm telling you now, they don't have anything to do with growing a church. They don't have anything to do with growing buildings or getting more money. The words that I'm sharing with you now have everything to do with your spiritual vitality. You, the church, the body of Christ, the bride. I recognize that this is important and I felt in my spirit that there are probably some who have been greatly weakened in spirit really sick because they've not recognized the extreme importance of being connected to a church family. Listen, if you're not connected to a church family, I'm not going to come out and say you're going to get struck by lightning. Oh, you're not connected to a a local church. Uh, God's going to strike you dead. I can't say that because that's not what the Word says, but here's what I can say. I can say what the Word says. If you are not connected, it compromises your spiritual immune system. You know when your immune system is down, you're open and vulnerable to all kinds of stuff. When your immune system's down, you don't die of a low immune system. You die of something that's capitalized on that low immune system. That's what you die of. What the Bible says is that when we're in fellowship with each other our immune system grows listen it doesn't guarantee that bad things are not going are going to happen or not happen it just means we're stronger to face them i'm hearing these things today well i have enough in my small group yeah you you have enough in hearing what you want to hear iron sharpens iron folks i tell you if i can get more people in my life and listen and hear the better i am That my immune system is strengthened because I'm connected. The act of taking communion in the New Testament is an extension of the Old Testament Passover. And you have to notice what is modeled here. Because the Passover was taking the blood, the blood of the lamb, putting it over the doorpost was done to protect the family from death. You notice that. The unit from death. I remember my father going through our house and 
anointing the doorposts with oil, and he still does that here for you. You check some of the tops of those doors, they're oily. Because we understand this concept. It's about community. It's about family. God has seen and he knows where we stand and he is called in the Old Testament the God who covered them. The word in the Hebrew is Jehovah Nisi. God is my banner. He's my covering. He shades me from the hot sun during the day. He covers me from what may befall me at night. Jehovah Nisi, he protects me. That's that banner right there. Jehovah Nisi, he is my covering. We didn't put it there on accident. We thoughtfully put it there, prayerfully put it there. The word makes it clear that we derive strength and health from being covered and connected to a, a local community of believers. And in light of the times that we live in, you know, I've come to realize that if you and I are not part of a vital family, we're putting ourselves and our families at risk. That if I neglect my communion with you, my fellowship with you, my friendship with you, if that is neglected in my life, I am severely weakened. My ability to overcome is weakened. And then I become susceptible to the snares of the enemy. I think there are some here today who are suffering in their thought life. I think there are some that are suffering in their marriage. You're suffering at school. You're suffering in a job because you've chosen to withdraw from the family of God. That's never, ever a good idea. I say that because the word says it. And let me add one other thing into that. I say that because I've been around long enough to see it. You cannot tell me anyone that's withdrawn, going through a difficult time, is going to get better. Right when I see that happen, I run to them. When we took this trip to Israel, I was the guy who took up the rear. You know, I was just kind of like a mother hen. Just stay in front of me, stay in front of me. The reason I did that is because I made a decision. And I made it a long time ago, but I, I made it again when we took this trip. No one will get lost on my watch. And if I lose somebody, I'll find you. And it happened. <laughs> and I think one of those reasons is because there's something about shepherding that you need to make sure you keep everything out in front of you and you're watching. I pray that God gives you that same anointing, that same passion. That's why today I want us to receive communion with an emphasis on a renewal of commitment to your family, to one another. I don't want anyone to take communion alone today. If you're our guest here today, we want you to come to the Lord's table here and enjoy. The Lord's table is also back there. You can go back there where the elements are.
But please know this, you're not doing this alone. Loneliness is a killer. And we do this together in the context of family. You may belong to another family somewhere, a church family. That's wonderful. I'm glad you're here. Just stay connected. What I want you to do right now in order to emphasize what we've just said, would you take the hands of the people that are just next to you? We don't do this very often, but I, I think we just need to remind each other that you know, we, we are part of a, a family. Yeah, if you got to cross the aisle or if you're sitting by yourself, make sure. Yeah, let's go right here. Good. I don't, you know, this is good enough. So we, what we do is we're just taking hands. We're being reminded that we belong to each other. You need to be reminded of that. That the person next to you, the person in front of you, the person behind you, we're part of the family and we renew that commitment here. And I'm going to pray we do that and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. Father, there's something that we need to do every now and again, and that is to remind ourselves that we're part of the bride of Christ. Right now we're flawed, but someday we'll be spotless. Right now we're weak, but someday we'll be strong. Right now we don't see the bridegroom, but someday we will. Jesus, come soon. Strengthen those here that need to be strengthened. Those that are physically sick, let them experience strength in Jesus' name. Let them be touched in Jesus' name. Those that need to be strengthened in their mind and their emotions, strengthen them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Do a work. Speak prophetically to them in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that your anointing would fall upon this place. And Lord, we would even see it happen. We would understand the word. We would see the imagery that's presented in the word. And we would experience it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. We say amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.